morning. Wow, good to see all of you here today. Now I know who slept in late when it's uh, with the daylight savings time, so good for you. Uh, hey, I, I was really excited to see um, Amber and uh, Amanda Wolfsleger. Uh, they, they just returned. Uh, Amber, they're both young uh, students, but they just returned. Am, Amber was in Madagascar, and Amanda was in Senegal doing ministry uh, through a group called Youth with a Mission. So where are they at? They're here somewhere. I know that dad and mom are just really glad that they're home. I, they're back. Where are you guys at? Way back there. Okay, so welcome home, you guys. Good job doing ministry there. So proud of them and what they're doing. You know, I, I grew up in a tight-knit family in Boyle Heights, which is a neighborhood just outside of East Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, just east of downtown Los Angeles. And I lived within a few miles of all my uncles and aunts and, and cousins. And, and um, because we all lived in close proximity to one another, we were, we were really close as a family. Um, we saw each other quite regularly, almost every week. Uh, we celebrated holidays together. Um, we, I, you know, I went to school with uh, a number of my cousins, and we were very, very close. When I was young, uh, one of my cousins, Glenn, he was about two at the time. He died unexpectedly, uh, suddenly, of SIDS, uh, sudden infant death syndrome. And it was really, I mean, it really was a shock to the entire family. I was, I was still quite young, so I don't remember all the details. And then a handful of years later, uh, my uncle, I'm sorry, my grandfather, my, my mom's dad, uh, died of leukemia at the age of 59, so he was quite young. And, and both of these deaths really had a profound uh, impact on my family, especially on some of my uncles and aunts. And I remember going to family gatherings, and, and, rem- and I remember the conversations that took place uh, at the dinner table. It was rank with uh, bitterness and hurt. And I distinctly remember hearing comments like, why did God let this happen? There can't be a God. I'll never believe in God. And as I reflect back on it now, uh, it was kind of it's funny to me that they would say that because they, weren't, they didn't believe in God in the first place. They were Buddhists. But, that they, but they blamed God for the fact that they lost these loved ones. So it didn't surprise me later on that uh, some of them actually turned from their mainstream Buddhism to, to the following a more radical uh, sect of, of Buddhism. And, and my family's response, as I look back on it, my family's response um, really left an indelible mark on my own life. And, and here's how. After I became a Christian, I began to wonder how I might react if tragedy struck my own life, struck my own family. I wondered if I would have the same response uh, as some of my relatives did. What would I do, for example, if I lost my parents, who I was very close to? Uh, would I... I began to wonder, would I turn away from my faith? Would I stop believing in God? Would I turn away from Jesus? I, re- I wondered those things. And I struggled with these thoughts for, for quite a number of years. And with each passing year, I grew stronger in my faith and I got closer to God. That's a good thing because I'm a pastor. Um, I became a pastor. But even today, if I'm really honest with you, and I've never shared this with, with anyone before, but even today... I have often wondered how I might react if, God forbid, something happened to my family. If my wife and my children, my girls, were diagnosed with some kind of a terrible disease or if, if God, God forbid, took them from me um, at a very young age. And I've wondered about that, how I might react. What would I do? Uh, 
Would I continue to trust God? Would I continue to love him with all my heart? I, I wondered about that. Have you ever thought about that? How you might react if, if tragedy struck your life? Would Jesus be enough for you under those circumstances if the most cherished people in your life were taken away from you? Well, today we're continuing in our series, Jesus is Not Enough. And I want us to look at the story of Job. It's a very important story because that's the very issue that he faced. What would he do? What would he do when uh, he was faced with, with suffering? So if you brought your Bible, turn to the book of Job. If you open up your Bible right to the center, you'll probably run right into the book of Psalms. And if you book, turn to the left, just go one uh, book over to the left, you'll run right into Job. So Job chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And I want to encourage you, bring your Bibles with you. Uh, you can mark them all up, and it's just a really helpful tool as we study the Word of God. I printed up the verses uh, on the sheet in your Baywatch as well. Not all of them are on there. Most of them are on there. And, and you can also follow along on our South Bay Community Church app, which you can download at the, at the Play Store, the Google Store, the um, App Store, or the Apple Store. And just click on Weekend Services, and uh, all the verses should pop right up there for you. All right? So before we dive in, let me uh, open up our time in a word of prayer, and we'll find out what Job has to say. Well, Father, thank you so much. It's great to be here this morning on this cold, uh, wintry, rainy morning. But God, there's, there's nothing better than to be, to be able to gather together as a family uh, to worship you, to study your word. And God, we desperately want to hear from you. And I pray, God, as we, as we look at Job, as we study his life, I pray that your word would do the work, that your word would speak to each and every one of us. God, I am incapable of convicting anybody, of persuading anybody to do anything. Your Holy Spirit needs to do that. And I, I ask, I beg, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each and every one of our hearts today in a powerful way. So, God, thank you. We commit this morning to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the story of Job, or at least can associate his name with one thing, and that would be suffering. Right? We, uh, Job is synonymous with suffering. And the reason why the book of Job is so important to us is because we all suffer. We all suffer hardship. We all experience adversity. We sometimes will experience tragedy and heartbreak and calamity. And it comes in all forms and all shapes and all sizes. It might come out of nowhere like it did for Job. It might hit you, suffering might hit you back to back to back to back. And sometimes it'll just go on forever like there's no end to it. Some of you can already identify with what I'm talking about. And when suffering comes, you can't, you're going to be faced with this question, and that is, where is God? Where is God? Or is Jesus enough? They're really the same question when suffering comes. And it's an issue that, um, that people in our church have faced, I mean, for a lot of years. I know that there are people in our church, parents in our church, who have lost young children and young children who have lost a parent, a father, or a mother. It has been faced by people in our church who have battled cancer, lots of people who have battled cancer over their lives. I know of a teenager in our church today who is battling cancer. This is a question that has been faced by families, by husbands who have been abandoned by their wives, and by wives who have been abandoned by their husbands, and children who have been abandoned by their mothers and by their fathers. It is a question, where is God, that has been asked by people in our church who have lost loved ones through suicide and even murder, if you can believe that, by people who have lost their jobs 
and who have lost their homes, by people who have suffered debilitating diseases, and by people in our church who have been molested and raped and abused. There are people in our church who have lost loved ones one after the other. Just within a space of a few months, they've lost three, four loved ones unexpectedly at times. And there have been people in our church who have experienced every type of suffering that's imaginable. And if you're still young and you have been re- your life has been relatively suffering-free, well, then praise the Lord for that. But mark my word, mark my word, one day suffering will come your way. It will come your way. And you will find yourself face-to-face with that question, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? You know, peri- periodically I try to remind my girls that, that life, is ta- life is hard. Life is full of suffering. Uh, you know, they've, they've had it relatively easy all of their lives. But I, I, I remind them of that because I want them to be, be prepared for that when suffering comes. And, and that's my heart today is to remind you that there is suffering in this world because suffering will come. And I want to prepare you for that. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Job, all right? So in order to tell you a little bit about Job, I'm just going to read the first five verses of chapter 1. And I think the first five verses will give you a good sense of the kind of man that he was, all right? So take a look at Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. You can look at the screen uh, or at your Bible, and it says this. There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, whose name was Job, not Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and the very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. You can stop right there. So here's what we know about Job. Here's what we learned about Job in the first five verses of chapter 1. First of all, Job was a man of God. He was a man of God. According to verse 1, he was blameless and he was upright and he turned away from sin. He was a man of God. It's a pretty amazing statement to say that, if you think about it, that he was a man of God. You know, the first thing that Franklin, Franklin Graham said about his father, Billy Graham, at his funeral last week when he rose... To pay tribute to his father, the very first words out of his mouth were, were these, we've come here today to honor a man of God. Think about that. That's, that's pretty amazing. We've come here today to honor a man of God. I can't think of a higher tribute than you can pay a man than to say he was a man of God, or to pay a woman, or a young lady, than to say that she was a woman of God. I can't think of a greater tribute than that. And that was Job. He was a man of God. Second, verse 3 tells us that Job was a rich man. He was a very wealthy man. He had everything that a man could ever want. He was, in a sense, the Jeff Bezos of his day. Do you know who Jeff Bezos is? He owns Amazon. According to Forbes magazine, Jeff Bezos is now the richest man in the world with a, with a net worth of over $12 billion. Last year, his net worth went up $40 billion. In one year, it went up $40 billion to $112 billion. And speaking of Amazon... If I can give a shameless plug for our church, if you make a purchase, if you buy something from Amazon, Jeff Bezos said he will donate one half 
10% of whatever you purchase to our church. Now, he didn't tell me that directly. But with all the money he makes, I think he'd give us more. But I'll take a half a percent. It's free money. All you need to do is go to Amazon Smile and register our church. Just register it. So who do you want to give your one half percent to? And you put South Bay Community Church. Better yet, put Torrance South Bay Community Church. Or if you put South Bay Community Church, you'll see Torrance South Bay Community Church. That's our official legal name, Torrance South Bay Community Church. Just click on that. And from here on out, every time you purchase something from Amazon, we'll get a half a percent of whatever you purchase. And so, you know, it's free money. So I think it's kind of cool. And uh, this month, I understand it's, it's, um, we get a one and a half percent instead of a half a percent. But uh, if you're wondering about how this is going to affect anything, it doesn't affect anything. What you need to do is just go to Amazon Smile every time you want to buy something. And if you have Amazon Prime like I do, you'll, you'll see this. You log on. It's Amazon Prime will show up. But, and then everything will go, uh, half percent will go to the church. And none of the prices go up because you got Amazon Prime. All of a sudden, everything is a little more expensive. No, everything stays exactly the same as it is. So consider doing that. So Job was the Jeff Bezos of his day. He was a very, very rich man. Third, Job was a family man. He was a family man. Now, to show you what kind of a family man or a father he was, every week in verse 5 it says, he would offer burnt offerings to the Lord on behalf of his children because, as it says here, he was concerned that they might be sinning against God during the week. And in order to atone for their sins or to make sure that they were forgiven of their sins, he would offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And it was, he was like a family priest. He was like a family priest, and so he interceded for his children because all that mattered to him, all that mattered to him was that his children would be right with God. I think it's a pretty cool thing. So Job was a very great man. He was a very great man. In fact, in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, it says that he was the greatest of all the men in the east. So four things. He was a man of God. He was a very rich man. He was a family man, and he was a great man. Now, one day, unbeknownst to Job, there was a secret meeting in heaven. A secret meeting in heaven, and Pastor John MacArthur described it this way. He said, God held a council with his heavenly court. In other words, his heavenly court would be made up of angels. God held a council with his heavenly court, and Satan showed up to talk about Job. Now, I'm not going to get into the theology of the devil showing up in heaven, but according to Job, that's, what he, that's exactly what he did. Now, here's what went down when Satan showed up in heaven. It says in verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you ever thought about my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So the Lord was very proud of Job, very proud of Job, a man of God. He was a very wealthy man. He loved his children. He always was concerned about their relationship with God. And and God added one more characteristic or attribute or tribute to him. He paid to him. He said, there's none like him. There's no one like this guy, Job. Well, He asked Satan, have you ever considered him? Here's what the devil, uh, here's how the devil replied in verse 9. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. You can stop there. You see, the devil insinuated that the only reason Job was a man of God was, because God was because God blessed him, because Job was loaded. He had all this money. That's why he was a man of God. And so Satan prodded the Lord to strip Job of everything he had, take away his riches, take away his money, 
take away his wealth, make him suffer. And you know what Job is going to do? He's going to curse you to your face. That's what, the Satan, that's what Satan said to God. That's what he said Job would do. You know what God said? Go ahead. Have at it. Go for it. Try it. Take a look at verse 12. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He went out from the presence of the Lord and began to wreak havoc on Job's life. Job's life. God said, go at it, go for it. And he went out and began to wreak havoc on his life. Starting in verse 13, tells us exactly what he did to Job. Verse 13 says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing the donkeys, feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell, tell you. And verse 17, And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Calamity struck Job's household. And in an instant, he lost everything he had. First, his servants were killed in an attack by the Sabians. The Sabians were this ancient people group, lived in the land of Sheba, which is located in present-day Yemen. And then it says, fire rained down from heaven and wiped out his livestock and more of his servants. And then the Chaldeans who live in, who live in southern Babylonia, which today would be southern Iraq, swooped down and made off with all of his camels. A huge loss to Job. His camels were his bread and butter. I mean, he used the camels to transport goods back and forth. He used the camels for milk and for meat. You know, just uh, last month, my wife Cheryl um, was in Uganda, and on her way home from Uganda, she and, she and um, Laura Ellenberger uh, made a stopover in Dubai on their way back in the United Arab Emirates. And while she was there, they ate camel. She told me it tasted like meat or beef. And then they tried the, the milk. Laura was telling me today that the milk was kind of sweet, but kind of, kind of, uh, kind of uh, I don't know, kind of wild tasting, kind of gamey tasting. Well, the Chaldeans made off with all of Job's, Job's camels. And then they killed more of his servants in verse 17. And then you come to verse 18 and 19. It says, a great wind came, and it was so powerful that it caused the house in which his children were gathered to collapse. And all 10 of his kids, all 10 of his children were killed. It was one tragedy after the other. And the devil's fingerprints were all over it. The story begs the question, why is there suffering in the world? Why is there suffering? Where does it come from? Why do I suffer? Well, based on this passage, we can, make a number, we can make a number of assumptions. First of all, if you're taking notes, you can write this one down. There is suffering because of Satan. 
that are suffering because of the devil. Catastrophes that befell Job were clearly the work of the devil. God said, have at it. And he went and had at it. He attacked Job. He attacked him and he attacked him. And that's what the devil does. Jesus said in reference to the devil in John 10.10, he said this, I'll put it up here for you, the thief. The thief is another description of, of Satan. The thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He comes to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to bless our lives, but the devil comes to, to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what the devil does. And so he attacked Job. He destroyed his livelihood. He killed Job's servants. He murdered his family. He brought suffering upon them. That's what the devil does. He brings suffering all over the world. It's places all over the world today. Children are dying and people are dying. That's the work of the devil. He brings suffering even to believers, even to Christ followers. A couple years, a year and a half ago, we studied the book of Revelation. And we saw this passage in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, when, when John wrote seven letters to the seven churches. In the church of Smyrna, Revelation 2.10, he wrote this. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Notice that? didn't say that we weren't going to suffer. He said that there will be suffering and, and the church will suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He said, he said, it says here very clearly, the verse says that, that, the, that the devil will attack believers and some will even be thrown into prison. And the implication here, be faithful unto death, is that believers will even be murdered for their faith. You see, I believe that the devil is behind the persecution and murder of Christians all over the world. And today we're hearing more and more about Christians who are being thrown into prison and murdered for their faith in places like North Korea and Iran and Sudan in Pakistan, and it is all the work of the devil. Another way that Satan causes suffering is through sickness and disease and physical afflictions. The devil wasn't done with Job in chapter 1. After chapter 1 came chapter 2. And in chapter 2, God holds another council in heaven. And the devil shows up one more time. Once again, this is the second time. Take a look at this. Listen to this interchange in Job chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Sounds almost identical to chapter 1. And it goes on, and he still, he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now notice, he says he still holds fast. He still holds fast after all that happened to him in chapter 1. He lost all of his children. He lost his servants. He lost his livestock. After all that, he holds fast to his integrity, is what he was saying here. And then verse 4 says, And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spares life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And, he verse, and verse 8 says, And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. You see, this time, Satan attacked Job's body from head to toe. He attacked him with these loathsome sores. The word loathsome in the Hebrew can be translated malignant. 
So he, was, he attacked him with these malignant boils that just broke out all over his body. It was so bad, it was, it was on his head all the way down to his feet. It was, it was on his feet, so he probably couldn't even stand. It was on his backside, he probably couldn't even sit. It was on his back, so he probably couldn't even lay down. They were all over, just come, completely covered his body. He was so miserable, so desperate for some relief that he, he took a piece of pottery and he used it to scrape the boils off of his body. And of course, they wouldn't go anywhere. Just pus just oozed out and blood and it was just a mess. And I just cringe just to think of of what that must have looked like and how that must have felt. See, Satan plays a role. We see that Satan plays a role in our infirmities and our physical sufferings. We see this in the Gospels as well. If you go to the New Testament in Luke chapter 13, there's just one example. There was a woman in Luke chapter 13 who had some type of disability that prevented her from standing up straight. Take a look at Luke 13 verse 11. And it says, And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself up. She couldn't get up for whatever reason. Where did she get this disability from that she couldn't even stand up straight? Verse 16, take a look at it. And it says, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a Jew, whom Satan bound for 18 years, Satan afflicted her with disability. It was Satan's responsibility. He had a hand in it that she couldn't stand up straight. It was the devil. She got it from the devil. Now I need to stop here for one second and ask an important question. Right? Does this mean, does this mean that every sickness, every cold, every disability, every mental illness, every kind of suffering that we have, physical suffering, comes from the devil? No, it does not. Satan is not behind every sickness, every disease, every disability. Right? Uh, take heart disease, for example. Take, you, you don't need the devil to get heart disease. Right? You, you generally get heart disease by eating the wrong foods. You don't need the devil. I mean, all you need to do is go to In-N-Out Burger today and keep scarfing down these french fries. You keep, if you keep scarfing down these french fries, 18 grams of fat, 5 grams of, of saturated fat, and this will get you on your way to having heart disease. Right? And I love these French fries. Or if you go to Jack in a Box, order two, eat, the, eat their Jack in a Box tacos. Two for 99 cents. Man, these are, these are a bomb, right? They're, they're so good. 22 grams of fat, six grams of saturated fat. Eat enough of these, it'll get you heart disease real quick. All right? Or the grand prize, the filet of fish at McDonald's. The grand prize, 20 grams of fat. 3.8 grams of saturated fat, 8 grams of polyunsaturated fat, 5 grams of monounsaturated fat, 43 milligrams of cholesterol, 382 milligrams of sodium, and it is yummy. <laughs> I love the fish fillet at McDonald's. And if you eat foods like this, it will clog your arteries faster than you can say in and out, in and out. That's what a hamburger is all about. <laughs> you see, Satan doesn't have a hand in every one of our physical illnesses or disabilities. He doesn't. And the, the difficulty is discerning when he's involved and when he's not. And it's, it's really hard to tell whether he's got a hand in when we're not feeling well. And so I think we've got to be careful not to jump to conclusions that just because you get sick that the devil made you sick. So if you go home and somebody at home is sick today or the person next to you is sick today, they got a cough, you hear that, 
don't tell him that the devil gave him that cold because we don't really know, right? But there is no doubt when we come to this story of Job, there is no doubt that the devil's fingerprints were all over it, all over it. Another way that Satan causes suffering is through his involvement in natural disasters. Now, we saw it in the fire that fell down from heaven and the wind that blew the house that killed his 10 children. But again, this does not mean that Satan is behind every natural disaster that occurs on planet Earth. In fact, there's nothing in the Scriptures, there's nothing in the Bible that supports the notion that, that the devil causes earthquakes, that the devil causes hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes and volcanic eruptions and mudslides and snowstorms and on and on and on. There's nothing to support that. And it is more likely that most natural disasters occur because we live in a fallen and sin-cursed world. Romans 8, Paul said this, for, for the creation... The word creation there refers to the universe. For the universe was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation, the universe, will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You see, this tells us, this tells us that the universe is in bondage to corruption. Creation, the earth, is in bondage to the corruption of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, it wasn't just man that was impacted by sin. The entire universe was affected by sin, and it became corrupted, and paradise was lost, and everything that was perfect went away. It was only after the fall of man that the earth began to experience natural disasters. In the Garden of Eden, there were no earthquakes, there were no tornadoes, there were no hurricanes. We didn't have to worry about any of that because everything was perfect. But then when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, everything changed. And natural disasters began to, we began to suffer. So write this one down. There is suffering because of sin. There is suffering because of sin. And if you think about it, sin and evil are the cause of most suffering in the world today. I mean, evildoers leave a trail. They leave a trail of suffering wherever they go. Think about all the, the sufferings that we have seen recently in our country, and even around the world for that matter. And it's sin that, that causes most of it. Recently, I heard about a man named Gassan Ward. Gassan Ward is a pastor. Uh, he's the pastor of, a Greek Orthodox church, of the Greek Orthodox Church in Aleppo, Syria. Now, if you've been following the news at all, you, you will know that Aleppo is the ground, is ground zero for the um, civil war that has ravaged Syria for several years now. And between Russia and the Syrian president, Syrian president Bashar, Bashar al-Assad, uh, they have bombed Aleppo back to the Stone Age and most of the city looks just like this. And in Syria, more than the last few years, more than 400,000 Syrians have died. Millions have fled. And the country has been reduced to rubble. This is Ghassan Ward, Pastor Ghassan Ward. He, recently, he said this about what's happened to him. He said, I lost everything in the war. My bishop was kidnapped. My church and my house were ruined by rockets. I lost my wife to, two years ago to cancer. I lost my two sons who had to leave the country to stay out of the army. I lost two close family members to a bomb. So you can say I am like many Syrians who also lost everything. Sin has caused him and millions of others to suffer untold misery and heartbreak. And we see it all the time. So what is God's role in suffering? What is his role in suffering? Well, we know Satan's role. We have an idea of what Satan's role is. We have an idea of sin's role in suffering. Well, what about God's role? Well, let me take you back to chapter 1, verse 12 again. We just read it, but let me take you back again. 
God says something very interesting here that has to do with his role in suffering. All right, take a look at it again. It says this, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. All that he has in, in your ha- is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. We see a very similar statement in chapter 2, verse 6. Take a look at Job 2, verse 6. Again, we read this, but I'll read it again. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So what was God saying to Satan here? What was he saying? Well, first, I believe he was demonstrating or exercising his dominion over Satan. His dominion over Satan. We know from reading scriptures that the Satan is the ruler of the world. John 12, 31. Let's put it up here for you. Satan is the ruler of the world. But what God is saying here is that he rules over the entire universe. God rules over even Satan. So what he was doing here, what God was doing here, was he was kind of flexing his muscles, in a sense, asserting his authority over Satan to call the shots, to make the rules, to decide what's going to go on in heaven because he is almighty God. And Satan is simply subordinate to God. Second, God told Satan what he could and couldn't do. In this passage, these two verses, 12 and verse 6, he was telling Satan what he could and couldn't do. And the only reason the devil could mess with Job was because God allowed him to mess with Job. And Satan had to operate within the guidelines that God laid down for him. In other words, God set a limit on Satan's power. And that limit was this, that he was not allowed to kill Job. He could mess with Job, but he was not allowed to take his life. And this this principle here, this is so good. I mean, I hope you get this. This is so good. Because it's a reminder of of who is in control. When you are suffering, who is in control? It isn't the devil that's in control of your life. God is in control of your life. God is the king. God is greater than Satan. God is greater than all. It's greater than your suffering. And I like the way Pastor John Piper described the devil. Put this quote up here for you. He said, Satan may be a lion, but he is a lion on a leash. I like that. He, is, he may be the lion. He may be a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. Remember, remember the apostle Paul likened the devil to a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says the devil goes about like a lion, roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. That's kind of what John Piper was picking up on. That Satan may be a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. There may be suffering because of Satan, but God limits Satan's powers to cause suffering because he is God. And God is in control. God is the ruler of the universe, not, not Satan. So write this one down. There's suffering, but God is in control. God is in control of your suffering. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when you hurt, all you can think of is your hurt. I know I'm like that. When I'm hurting, all I can focus on is my hurt. I remember years ago when I was a, a young guy, I was madly in love with this, this little lady, this pretty little lady. Um, but she didn't love me. She didn't feel the same. And when she finally told me that uh, she didn't feel the same way, this is honest, honestly God truth. I, I became inconsolable. I could not stop crying. I, for days, I cried because my heart was broken into, into a million pieces. And I remember uh, one of my friends said to me, well, well, you know what this means, don't you? And as, as I'm crying, you know, you know what this means, don't you? He said, he said, it means that God has someone better than you. I'm better, better for you than her. 
has someone better. And, I, and when he told me that, you know what I did? No! All I could do was cry because I was just in so much pain. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't care for what he said. Another one of my friends said, well, she was no good anyway. You know what I did? Oh, no, no, she's really good. And that's the truth. I, I really did that. And then someone else said to me, well, I've got, I've got somebody. I, I've got just a person for you. Let me set you up with her on Friday night. No! You know, when you're hurting, all you can think of is your hurt. You can't get your hurt off. You can't get your mind off of it. When you're lonely, all you can think of is how lonely you are. When you've got a headache, all you can think of is, oh, my head hurts. My head hurts. When you've got a stomach ache, all you can think of is your stomach ache. When you're sitting in church and you're hungry and you've got these stomach pangs, you can't think of what I'm saying. You can't, you're not, you can't focus on what I'm saying, right? All you're thinking is, I'm so hungry. I can't wait to, I wish you'd stop talking so I could go to lunch, right? Seriously, when you're, when you're depressed, all you can think of is how depressed you are. When you're, when you're suffering, all you can think of is, is your suffering. But here's what you need to know. There's so much more going on than your suffering. When you are suffering, something else is going on that you may not even be aware of. It's like the time Jesus was tried, and then he was flogged and beaten. Remember that? We're going to celebrate Easter in just a couple of weeks, but before he was crucified, they put him on trial because he claimed to be the Son of God. And because they didn't believe him, they, they beat him, and they flogged him, 39 lashes. And then the reason he got to this point in the first place, do you know how he got to this place in the first place? Luke chapter 22, verse 3. It says that, and then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Do you remember this? Judas was one of the twelve disciples. He was one of the twelve disciples who betrayed Jesus. And how is it that Judas, one of the twelve disciples, would go on and betray Jesus? Well, it tells us right here, and then Satan entered into him. What a terrifying verse. The devil went into him. So scary. You see, the devil's fingerprints were all over the suffering that Jesus had to go through. But there was something else going on. We don't see this. But there was something else going on. And we see it in Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 10. In the Old Testament, it says this. And yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. You see, we see the suffering, and we see dev the devil's hand in it. But you look at it from God's perspective, and what does it say here? It was God's will to crush him. It was God's will to crush him. In other words, what's going on is that Almighty God is sovereignly willing the death of his own son. So he could be a sacrifice for our sins. And you remember Pilate, Governor Pilate, the Roman governor? He was the one that sentenced Jesus to death. He sentenced him to crucifixion. Take a look at John 19, verse 16. It says, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Underline, handed him over. Pilate handed him over. He says, okay, here he is. Crucify him. You want him to be crucified? Here he is. Crucify him. And I would imagine if his disciples were there, they probably would have been aghast, like, no, no, you can't. He's the son of God. But there was something else going on. What was going on? Acts 2, verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. 
In other words, it was God's plan all along. It's God's plan all along for Jesus to be crucified. We, we, see, we see the devil's hand in him being crucified or being handed over to be crucified, but, but we look at it from God's perspective, and God's like, no, this is my plan. He had to be crucified. He had to die on a cross in order for your sins to be forgiven. He had to die on a cross for us to receive the gift of eternal life. It had to happen. There was something else going on. And here's the point. There's suffering because of Satan and sin, but there's something else going on, and that something else is that God is at work. God is at work in your suffering. God is in control, and he is working. He is working behind the scenes when you don't even know it. When you are suffering, God is behind the scenes working. And I love John 5, verse 17, and it says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. I love this. I love this passage. I love this verse to know that no matter what you're going through in your life, your, your marriage is falling apart. Your children don't want to have anything to do with you. You just got diagnosed with some kind of sickness, and God is working, and Jesus is still working behind the scenes. And how is he working? How is he working? He's working to ensure that his will, not your will, but his will and his purposes for your life come to pass. Whatever he wants, not what you want, but what he wants comes to pass. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, he works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you for his purposes, not yours. So write this one down. There's suffering, but God is at work. There's suffering, but God is at work. And that's why all things work together for good. All things, even suffering, even your sufferings and even your hardships can work together for good. Romans 8.28. Right? You're familiar with this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's the introduction of the message, all right? Now, let me get to what I really wanted to talk about today, and that's Job's response. How did Job react? This godly man, this rich man who had it all, how did he react when he lost everything? Let me show you, first of all, how his wife reacted, all right? This is Mrs. Job. I don't know if Job was his last name or his first name. I think it's his first name, but I'll call her Mrs. Job. Let me show you how Mrs. Job reacted. Now, remember... And she makes this comment that I'm going to show you. She, she, she gives us her two cents after he's afflicted with all these sores and boils. All right? So she doesn't give this. This comment does not come after, he lost all the, after they lost their ten children, after they lost their camels and their livestock and, and their servants. This comes after the boils affliction, the sores. And then she gives us this comment, Job chapter 2, verse 9. And she said this, And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. How'd you like to be married to her? Well, <laughs> curse God and die. And you read this and it's apparent, it's obvious, God was not enough for her. When Job lost everything, she lost everything. When he lost 10 children, they were her 10 children. When he lost his ability to make an income, she lost that income. And so she was angry and she was bitter. And notice, she didn't blame the devil. She blamed God. Curse God and die is what she told him. That was her response, Mrs. Job. Now here's Mr. Job. Here was his response after the 
the kids died in chapter, at the end of chapter 1. And then, verse 20, and then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Amazing. First, Job tore his robe and shaved his head. In the Hebrew culture, this was an expression of mourning and grief. When you were in mourning or in grief, you would shave your head and you would tear your clothes as an expression of mourning. And he mourned. I mean, no question about it. I mean, he didn't lose one kid. He lost ten. And I can't, I can't even imagine. I can't, it's unbearable to think of losing one, let alone ten. And he just bawled his eyes out. I mean, just uncontrollable sobbing in grief. And then as the tears flowed, he fell to the ground, and he looked up to God, and he worshipped he worshipped. He fell. He held fast to his integrity. He didn't blame God. He didn't curse God like his wife told him to. Verse 21 says he blessed God. He blessed God. Do you know why? Because God was enough for him. If he had nothing else in this world, if he had no wife, no children, no possessions, no nothing, God was enough for him. And so he worshipped him. And he blessed him. That's your final point. There is suffering. But God is enough. It is enough. And it is an astounding response. Think about it. What an astounding response to suffering. And later on, Job, even in all of his sickness that went on, for months, I would imagine, even later on, Job said this in chapter 13. If you were to flip over to Job 13 and verse 15, he said this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And I love the way the Christian Standard Bible puts it. He said, even if he kills me, I will hope in him. Even if God takes my life, I will keep looking up to him. I will keep hoping in Him. I will keep trusting in Him. Let me ask you something. Can you say that? Can you say that? If everything you had, including your loved ones, including your children, were taken away from you, could you say that even if He kills me, yet will I hope in Him because He is enough? Can you say that? I hope you can say that. I hope I can say that. You know, someone who said that, who was able to say that, was Barbara Romero, who was Pastor Day's mom. This is Barbara here. She battled cancer for 28 years. 28 years! There were times of, and I've known her for a, a good chunk of that time, but there were, there were times when her suffering was unbearable. The pain was excruciating. But she never stopped looking up. Never. 
never stopped worshiping her Lord. She never stopped reading her Bible. Look at her Bible. It's all marked up. It's like, where are the words? Because it's all marked up. can barely read it. She never stopped praying. She never stopped serving the Lord. Always coming to church and serving the Lord. Because Jesus was enough. Shortly before Barbara went home to be with the Lord in February 2015, it's been three years now, she wrote out some final instructions for her family. I think she knew that she was not going to be here much longer. Here's the first thing she wrote. She wrote, my precious loved ones, please respect and follow my wishes or else. That was Barbara. You know, if you knew her, she was like, you better do what she says. She wasn't like Mrs. Job at all, but she was like, this is what I want. And she wrote this. Please no getting together for lunch at restaurant after the memorial service. Tacky. And she underlined all that and highlighted tacky in yellow. And expensive. Just nice snacks at the church after memorial, okay? And then she wrote this. She wrote, and I got her family's permission to share this. Continue to grow in your relationships to Jesus. Read the word and pray daily. Go to church and take Papa. Keep on serving the Lord. Barbara just kept looking up. She just kept looking up. No matter what happened, 28 years of cancer, 28 years of suffering, 28 years of hardship, 28 years of pain, 28 years of just barely being able to get out of bed sometimes. But she just kept looking up. And today, she would be so pleased to know that her family keeps looking up. And she would be thrilled to know that last Sunday, her son, Pastor Dave, got engaged to Sarah Fujimoto. <laughs> Sarah, I know you're in here somewhere. I'm gonna, I won't make you stand up, but I know what. You know, Barbara is probably doing somersaults in heaven. Like, he finally got engaged? Like, whoa! And she is just thrilled. And what a great couple they are. But see, here's the problem. One day... It's not a problem, it's just a reality. One day, suffering is going to come to Mr. and Mrs. Dave Romero. Just like it's going to come to all of us. We're all going to suffer. Maybe you're already suffering. Maybe it's already come because you have got cancer. Or maybe you're suffering because your marriage is just on the rocks. Maybe you're suffering because you just lost a loved one. Last night after our first service, man came up to me and he said can I, can I just speak with you? And I said sure what's going on? He says my mom died last night and he just started a ball and I got a chance just to pray for him and to give him a hug suffering has already come to him maybe it's come to you because you've been married a few years and you've just tried and tried you just can't get pregnant or maybe you can't even get a date. You, you struggle with, with loneliness and with singleness. Maybe you, you're a young person and you, you, suffering has come to you because school is hard. And at home, maybe all your parents do is fight or maybe they're never there for you because they're always working. And it is hard. It's difficult. Maybe suffering has come to you because you've been out of work for months and now you're on the verge of losing everything. Or maybe you're suffering because you're estranged from your kids. And they don't want to have anything to do with you. Or, you, or your parents are 
all messed up. I don't know. Maybe you're in dire financial straits. Whether suffering is already here or whether it is yet to come, I hope you'll take these words to heart. Look up. Just keep looking up. Fix your eyes on Jesus like Job did, like Barbara did, so that when the suffering does come, you won't be turning away, but you'll hold on. And as you look up, I hope you'll always remember that no matter what, no matter how much you suffer, no matter how bad things get, God is with you. God loves you. God loves you so much. And he's in control. He's in control. And he's working in your life. Hold on to him. Look up to him. Because he's there. Amen? Let's close our time in prayer. Father, what a, what a great, great God you are. Father, we still don't, I don't think we'll ever fully understand all of the sufferings that we go through in this life. But how good it is to know, God, that in the midst of it all, you are always there, that you are in control, and your love for us never stops and never quits. God, we, we are faced with the reality that there really is a devil and there is sin in the world that brings so much of our suffering about. But we are joyous in the reality that there's also a God, that you are real and there's no one like you and you are the king of the universe. You are the creator of the universe. And you loved us so much to send your one and only son to die on a cross for our sins. So God, help us. Prepare our hearts for what may be, what may be already here. Prepare our hearts for what will eventually come in our lives. Help us to always look to you. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust in your sovereignty and in your love. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to continually cast ourselves on you as if we're desperate because we are. Because we sometimes we have no one to turn to except to you. How good it is to know that you are always there. Help us, God, to, to keep our eyes looking up. <laughs>